welcome everyone. Thank you so much for being here uh, as part of Drisha's Tisha B'Av programming. Uh, we are thrilled to have this session with Rabbi Dr. Julia Watts-Belser, uh, who is an Associate Professor of Jewish Studies in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at Georgetown University. Uh, her research centers on gender, sexuality, and disability in rabbinic literature, as well as Jewish feminist ethics. Uh, she's the author of Rabbinic Tales of Destruction, Gender, Sex, and Disability in the Ruins of Jerusalem, as well as Power, Ethics, and Ecology, Rabbinic Responses to Drought and Disaster. Uh, a rabbi and longtime advocate for disability and gender justice, she writes queer feminist Jewish theology and brings disability arts and culture into conversation with Jewish tradition. Uh, this session, God Who Suffers With, Divine Presence Amidst Pain, We'll look at the ways in which Jewish tradition has mourned the destruction of the temple by tying loss to collective transgression, evoked most poignantly through the liturgy's lament of mitnei chata'inu on account of our sins. Uh, but the Babylonian Talmud's longest reflection on destruction puts little emphasis on communal wrongdoing and indicts instead the brutality of state violence and roaming conquest. So in this session, we'll be examining stories that grapple with Roman power and violence to explore how they imagine divine presence amidst pain, as well as how they invite us to consider God not as one who stands apart, but as one who suffers with. Uh, so Dr. Pelser, whenever you are ready, I think we can get started. I am going to share a link to the source sheet in the chat as well. And if folks have any questions, uh, they should feel free to jump in on the chat. Oh, uh, you're, you're- Thank you so go. much. Oh, it's really you. a pleasure to, um, to be here today with all of you. Before we get started, I want to just um, uh, give a few notes. So we do have um, live captioning for our session today. So thank you very much, Drisha, for making that possible. Thank you to Rachel, our captioner. Um, if any of you are interested in making use of the captioning, there should be a small button in the bottom of your Zoom screen to enable the captions. I recommend that if you are using the captions that you're and you're on Zoom, that you go ahead and pop out your um, your chat because otherwise chat and captions duke it out in the same space. Right? So make your chat a sidebar. Um, I want to just reiterate also the invitation to anyone who's here on, um, on Zoom to please feel free to engage in chat. Um, you're welcome to uh, ask questions, share thoughts. I don't guarantee that I will be able to get to all of them, but I really appreciate that form of interaction. And you're also really welcome to just echo ideas that are meaningful for, for you or that are speaking to you. Um, thanks also to those who are joining on Facebook Live. So it's really meaningful to be teaching here today and to have this chance to learn together and to be in conversation on Tisha B'Av. On Tisha B'Av, Jewish communities lament and mourn the destructions that have scarred our lives and our worlds. One of those destructions, of course, is the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple by the Roman Empire. That destruction was the subject of my most recent book, Rabbinic Tales of Destruction, 
Gender, Sex, and Disability in the Ruins of Jerusalem. And in that book, I look at stories from the Babylonian Talmud and the Midrash Lamentations Rabbah to examine how the material, the tangible, the visceral bodily experience of destruction, war, conquest, and loss has shaped rabbinic Jewish memory. So today, my plan is that we'll look together at two of those stories. We'll look at one from the Babylonian Talmud in Bavli Gitin, and we'll look at another from the Midrash, Lamentations Rabbah. We'll actually do Lamentations Rabbah first, and then switch over to the Talmud. So as a scholar, a lot of my work grapples with gender, sexuality, disability in rabbinic literature. And I always like to tell people at the start, as a queer Jewish woman, as a disabled woman, these questions matter to me. I have skin in the game, intellectually and spiritually. I care deeply about these questions. The stories that we're going to look at today are tough. They're hard stories. The texts are saturated with the brutal body costs of Roman conquest. So I want to just give you a warning at the start. The first text that we'll study deals with, includes Roman violence against children. And the story ends with a mother's suicide. And the second text involves sexual violence to a captured woman. Because these are such difficult subjects, because they're subjects that affect our own bodies and minds, I want to invite you now and throughout our time together to please feel free to care for yourself in whatever ways work for you and to tend to your own heart, your own body. I teach these texts viscerally aware in my own body and bones of what it costs to tell these stories, to read them, to think about violence and its aftermath. I teach these texts because I believe they matter, because I think it's vital that we collectively and communally grapple with violence, grapple with the questions that they raise. These stories offer a vivid portrait of Jewish lament. They also, I'll argue, articulate a powerful theology of resistance. To imperial, to imperial Roman power and violence. When I think about these texts today, of course, I'm also not just thinking about imperial Rome. I'm thinking also about the significance of state violence in our own midst, in our own day. These are texts that invite us to ask questions about how we think about God in relation to power and powerlessness, in relation to violence and violation and survival and loss. So they invite us to think about questions about how we think about God's presence, both in a private, personal key, but also in terms of its broader social implications. As someone who's very interested in questions of theology, I'm also particularly interested in the question of what theology does in the world, of what it enables, of what it hides, of whose bodies it works to protect, 
and whose bodies it leaves on the line. So I want to start by just thinking together for a moment about the way that ancient sources understand catastrophe and how they explain it. Ancient Jewish writers tend to think about catastrophe in covenantal terms. So disaster usually gets linked in some way with disobedience. Jewish liturgy uses the phrase mipnei chatatenu, on account of our sins, right? as a way of, of, of condensing this key idea. The specifics vary depending on the tradition, depending on the moment. There is, for example, a well-known tradition that says the temple was destroyed because of sinat chinam, baseless hatred or internal fighting. But that's not the only explanation that rabbinic sources give. Less well-known, for example, is a claim that the temple was destroyed because the community played ball games on the Sabbath. Right? Regardless of the details, this framework understands destruction and exile as a consequence of Jewish sin. It's worth noting, though, that in this framework, sin is never the end of the story. When the prophets and when the traditional sources tend to lay out this theology, they almost always emphasize that God's anger or chastisement is temporary. There's this cycle of sin, crisis, repentance, and return. So God might chastise a community, but ultimately God will restore the community's fortunes and turn back to the community in love. Now, I'll just lay my cards on the table and tell you I don't like this theology at all. It's a theology that troubles me deeply. And part of the impetus for my talk today and for the conversation that I want to have with you together is to think more deeply about how this theology works. what ways in which it might fail us, and also to explore some other alternatives that arise within the classical sources. But before I do that, as a scholar and a historian of ancient Jewish texts, one of my obligations is to try and go deeply into the mindset of the communities that were writing and telling these stories. And so I want to think first a little bit about why this theology, why the theology of Mipnei Chatatenu might have been really quite compelling to ancient Jews, and also why, in some ways, it may be compelling also to some of you. For many early Jewish thinkers, this kind of theology was a really powerful way to make sense of catastrophe. So I'm drawing here in part on the work of Jonathan Clowens, Jewish scholar who argues that this kind of theology had a lot of utility for ancient Jews for two main reasons. So first, the theology really underscores human agency. It's a theology that suggests what we humans do matters in this world. We're not just captives to fate or to circumstance, right? Our actions have consequences. Second, it holds catastrophe within a covenantal frame. It emphasizes that disaster 
doesn't break the bond between God and God's people. Suffering happens, but suffering is ultimately something that will cause the people to do right and to turn toward God's desire. Now, I told you already that I'm not a fan, right? I'm not a theological fan here of this, of this move. And I wanna tell you now a little bit about why. I don't like this theology because I don't like what it suggests about God. I don't like the way it imagines God as the architect of catastrophe, as though God has arranged and organized all the worst things that have happened to us. I'm indebted here to the important scholarship of Dr. Renita Weems, a brilliant womanist biblical scholar. In her book, Battered Love, Weems calls attention to the way that this kind of chastisement theology can make God look and feel like an abuser, right? I only hurt you because I love you. It's all for your own good. I recoil from that image of God. Right? And I don't like the way those kinds of theologies can get under, can get under our skin and shape our psyches. Right? To me, that's that runs counter to everything I know and love about God. My bedrock assumption, my foundation stone, is that God doesn't ever want us to experience violation. The God I love is a God who is sickened by violence, by rape, by murder, by brutality. I believe that a world in which we suffer is also a world in which God suffers, a world in which the divine presence is diminished. Now, when it comes to theology, your mileage may vary. Right? I, one of the things I love and deeply cherish about Jewish theology is that it is a very multivocal theology. There's room for a lot of different ideas notions and understandings, right? There's room for all of us to think about God in a variety of different ways, right? Some people draw great comfort from thinking about divine presence as powerful and in control, the sense that there's a divine plan, that even in the chaos, something exquisite will ultimately emerge, right? So let me just state for the record, not that you needed my permission, but that if that theology works for you, if it offers you comfort and meaning and access, to the holy presence in whatever ways you need it, then just carry on. But I also want to think, as I said, about the implications of some of our theological choices and to raise critical questions about what this kind of theology might mean for equipping us individually and collectively to better respond to violence, to state violence, to gender violence, to domination, to brutalization. So today I want to point to another way that some ancient Jewish thinkers understood divine presence amidst pain and suffering the way they understood God as radically affected by our pain. That's what I'll call 
God who suffers with. So to think with you about this, I want to look at two stories from classical Jewish texts. They're both stories that grapple with violence, with empire, and with bodies that suffered profoundly under during the destruction. So um, I might ask uh, folks from Drisha to share that source sheet again, if possible. Um, and, um, but I also want to assure you that I'll talk through everything that you need. So you can use the source sheet if it speaks to you, right? If you're the kind of person who likes to have the text in front of you, there's the source sheet available for you. Um, but you, um, if you don't have access to the source sheet, or if you just prefer to be present in a different way, you won't need it. I also want to, before we turn to the first text, remind you about that content note that I offered at the start. This text from Lamentations Rabbah involves the death of children, and it ends up lamenting a mother who takes her own life. So this story is from Lamentations Rabbah. It's a story that, uh, about Miriam Bat Tanchum, a woman who was taken captive by the Roman Empire, along with her seven sons. The Midrash recounts how each of those seven sons are brought before the Roman emperor. And when they refuse to forsake their God and bow to the emperor instead, he has each of them killed. The full Midrash is very long, so if you're looking at the handout, um, you'll notice that I've shared only a few specific excerpts, so we can hone in on a couple of key moments in the text. So at the center of this midrash is a lengthy theological exchange between Caesar, the Roman emperor, and Miriam's youngest son. His six older brothers, so there have been six sons who came before him, and they all had very brief, almost formulaic exchanges. Caesar brings each of them before him in turn, and he says to each son, bow before the image. Each son refuses to commit idolatry. And he says, I will not bow, and my brothers, my brothers did not bow. Now, the son quotes a verse that affirms his fidelity to Israel's God, and then Caesar has him taken away and killed. Six times that pattern is followed. Six times repeated with only a change in the verse. But when the seventh son is brought before Caesar, the Midrash opens up into an extended conversation, right? And that's where I've um, begun the source that appears on the handout. So bow before the image, Caesar says. It's the standard command, right? And this time when the boy refuses, heaven forbid, Caesar asks why. And the Jewish boy and the emperor are thrust into a dialogue about power and about bodies, both imperial bodies and divine. One of the most striking elements of this text, in my view, is the way the Midrash uses disability rhetoric to undercut and delegitimize the power of Caesar and the state. The text constructs a strong contrast between the body of God and the body of the emperor's gods, a contrast that is ultimately meant to underscore the limits of Caesar's power. So let's look a little more closely at this text. 
The section I want to examine you uh, with you begins when Caesar asks the young Jewish boy, is there a God in the world? That question was prompted by an exchange that doesn't actually appear in your handout. The emperor offers the seventh son a trick, a way to avoid execution. Right? The Caesar will throw his, his signet ring on the ground, and then the son can bend down to pick it up. Right? It's like a ruse. He's not really bowing before the, the, um, the statue, right? but it will look like he is. And so that way Caesar's audience will be appeased, but the boy won't actually transgress his God's command. Our Jewish boy says no way, right? He won't be drawn in. Instead, he asks a rhetorical question that draws a sharp contrast between Caesar and his God. He says, should he fear a king of flesh and blood rather than the king of kings? who is God of all the world, right? So notice here this contrast between flesh and blood, God of all the world. So Caesar says, is there a God in the world? And the boy answers, woe to you, Caesar, that you see a world that is free for the taking. The Hebrew phrase is really striking here. The boy describes Caesar's view of the world as hefken, it's a term that in rabbinic literature is used to describe abandoned property, something that's free for the taking. Something that's hefker is something that you can pick up and claim for your own. It is a cutting indictment of Roman imperial ambition. Do you think, the boy says to the Roman emperor, do you think that all of this is yours for the plucking? Don't you know that this world is already owned? So then Caesar asks him about his God. And the questions unfold as a veritable catalog of senses and body parts. I've put just the first two couplets here on the handout. Right? Does your God have a mouth? Does your God have eyes? I see in the chat that Natalie asks, how old is this boy? And it's a really interesting question because the, later on, our text will suggest that he's a very, very young child. Okay? But it's a little bit paradoxical because at this moment, even though he's described as the youngest of Miriam's sons, later on in the text, he will suckle right, from her breast. He's also clearly fully capable in this moment of engaging in a really nuanced theological argument with the Roman emperor, right? So I think we just have to hold that paradox lightly, okay? So he says, Caesar, does your God have a mouth? Does your God have eyes, ears, a nose, hands, feet, a throat? Right? As they go through this exchange, each time the boy uses a verse from Psalm 115 to castigate Caesar's gods. They have mouths but cannot speak. They have eyes but cannot see. Then he counters with a verse that affirms the powerful, capacious body of his own God. He says, the eyes of God roam over the entire earth. It's a verse from Zechariah. Now let's look at what's going on here. Psalm 115 is a significant text in Jewish liturgical tradition. It's chanted and sung as part of the hollow the cycle of psalms 
recited on Jewish holidays. This psalm is a really striking example of ancient idolatry discourse. Right? One that describes the gods of the nations as statues of silver and gold. It's quote unquote, lifeless idols who cannot see or save. Right? I'm actually really troubled by this discourse and I'll tell you more about that in a moment. Right? But first let's think a little bit about what's going on here. Um, a number of biblical studies scholars, I'll call out particularly appreciatively the work of Rebecca Raphael, who's here with us today, also Saul Young, have drawn attention to the way that disability discourse works as a stigmatizing strategy in biblical polemics about idolatry. So in this text, the psalmist uses disability imagery to script the human attributes of impairment onto the bodies of other people's gods, right? To describe those bodies as not good, ineffective, incapable, unable. Now, as I told you, I'm quite troubled by this text for several reasons. First, I think we have to be very, very careful about claims about idolatry. I find it ethically troubling when any community speaks dismissively about the deities of another tradition. My own ethics really counsel humility here. I speak with love and devotion of my tradition and my God, but I also aim to treat with respect other paths and other ways. I'm also troubled by the manner in which the psalmist levels an assault on the gods of the nations, right? The strategy that's used here, right? The way the images of disability get used as an insult, as a negative characteristic, a way of dismissing those gods. They're blind, they're deaf, or in a more contemporary idiom, they're so lame. Now, Notice how those physical and sensory attributes of sight and speech, right? And later in the part of the Midrash that's not on the page, right? The capacity to hear, to walk, to stand, all become embodied symbols for naming divine power. When the Jewish boy describes his own God, he invests God with bodily strength and physical power. Now, this is a text, I think, that would, would surely cause uh, Maimonides, right, the great Jewish philosopher, Rambam, to shake his head in utter philosophical frustration. Okay? Rambam face, uh, famously argues right, that all of these biblical passages that describe the divine body, for example, the passages that extol the power of God's strong right arm, it always makes me wonder, what about the left arm? God's strong right arm okay, are meant to be, this is, this is uh, Torah speaking in the language of humankind, right? They're just meant to be read as, as kind of metaphors, ways of pointing us toward thinking about power, right? other divine attributes. But I want to say we got to think about the significance of the metaphors we use and the kind of work those metaphors do in the world. The other thing I would say is that as a scholar and a historian of ancient Jewish texts, 
I think the rabbis were, many of them, very quite comfortable with the idea that God had a body, right? Not a visible body, right? But, but they often think about God in quite embodied terms, right? So this is, this is not comfortable for many of us moderns, right? Especially for modern Jews, right? Though, you know, you're, again, your mileage may vary, right? But it's uh, something that the sources, I think, are quite comfortable with. So the distinction our Midrash makes between Israel's God and the gods of Caesar is not actually between form and formlessness, but between agency and incapacity. God, this text suggests, has a body that is powerful and a God that is strong. So the Midrash uses Psalm 115 to, to lay out all the incapacities of the, um, the quote-unquote idols, right? but it builds up the body of Israel's God, right? the one who speaks the heavens into being, whose eyes survey the entire world, whose hands lay the foundation of the earth, and whose feet stand firm. Right? Now, okay, so in many respects here, we've had a kind of masterful theological display from our um, from the youngest, the youngest boy. Right? It's a it's a it's an extraordinary marshalling of theology, or at least it would be if it weren't situated in the execution chamber of the Roman state. Right? That I think really throws a wrench into the theology that's just laid out here, right? The discourse that's operating in the rarefied realm of theology is suddenly contested viscerally through the flesh. So we as readers have already seen six elder brothers die. We enter into this story already attuned to Caesar's power Right? to the way that the Roman state and Roman violence claims mastery over the actual body of the Jew. So we're kind of left to ask, as Caesar does, if your God has all of these qualities, why doesn't he save you from my hand? Caesar's words put the boy's claim to the test. Can God rescue its passive, you know, God's passionate defender from the imperial grip? Or will God's powerlessness be revealed through the death of this child? So Caesar asks, if your God can do all this, why doesn't he rescue you like he rescued Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the three boys the Babylonian emperor Nebuchadnezzar threw into the furnace, in the book of Daniel. Now this is a really crucial moment in the text. We could imagine it as a kind of divine test, almost a dare, right? Are you gonna do it, God? But the boy, once again, jumps to God's defense. It's not God's failure here, he says. It's his own. The three boys in Nebuchadnezzar's fire were blameless. Not only that, they fell into the hands of a worthy king, right? But his own generation, they're at fault. Right? And the king, 
he says, that's you, Caesar, right? The king who's now killing Jews is a cruel and undeserving king. And God is setting that king up for a terrible fall, right? Agreed with a wonderful comment in the chat that Caesar is indeed pretty knowledgeable here about Jewish history. So he's really prepared to get into this argumentation. Our text makes plain that this whole scene with Caesar and the boy and the execution that's about to unfold is arranged so that God will eventually be able to exact recompense in the end. Right? There's this amazing moment where the boy says to Caesar, look, Caesar, there's murderers aplenty in this world. There's wolves, and there's bears, and there's scorpions, right? They could all take my life. Caesar, you get to do it so that God can exact vengeance from you in the end. So what's happened here? Let's just look back to a moment to think a little bit about what the social implications of the theology are here. Okay? It's not God's power to save that is in question. It's the boy's own righteousness, or more properly, actually, the righteousness of him and his entire generation that becomes suspect. He, or perhaps his generation, isn't good enough to merit rescue. I actually think the slippage here is really significant. Notice how the fault of the generation, right? He says, we are not worthy, okay? becomes born on this one particular back and gets internalized by this one particular child. Lamentations Rabbah thus diffuses the question that captivity, crisis, and destruction poses about God's power by having the captive boy affirm the justice of his own death. That's a move I am not in for. The Midrash defends divine power at the altar of Jewish sacrifice. It rescues divine capability at the cost of Jewish blood. Now, here's what I don't know. Are we meant to believe the child when he professes himself guilty? Are we meant to take him at his word? I'm not actually sure what the Midrash intends. I don't know if the Midrash asks us or means us to ask questions, right? Means us to ask, really? But I know that as a reader, beneath the confident surface of this Midrash's theology, I hear some haunting counternotes about the power of empire, about God's power about bodies in grief and in pain. So I wanna look with you at one more place in this story, that moment when Miriam Batanchum comes before Caesar, just before her son is killed and begs the right to embrace her child. When the Romans give the boy to her, she uncovers her breast and lets him suckle milk. 
it's this really startling scene of physical intimacy between mother and son and a moment that really centers the female body as a source of nurture and care. I'm really struck by the contrast. While God's body remains eclipsed from the scene, while the divine hand refuses to rescue the child from Caesar's grip, right? it's the mother, the flesh and blood, blood mother, who thrusts her own body center stage. If there's a moment here that evokes kind of divine presence in the way that actually speaks to me, I'm speaking here very personally, right? It's not that image, right, of the distant orchestrating God. It's that image of Miriam, right, reaching out, reaching for, offering right, presence in the midst of extraordinary pain and loss. Now the gesture only underscores the futility of her resistance, right? We see here the, the limits of the mother's capacity to save. Her son is killed and she dies as well. The Midrash ends with a scene in which she throws herself from the roof in rage and despair. So I'm really struck as a feminist reader between that the difference between those bodies, the gulf between Miriam's fleshy female body, right, which throws itself between sun and the emperor's sword, and the powerful but absent body of God. Yeah, thank you, Rebecca, Raphael, for your comment in the chat about the way this also echoes, right? The cry of George Floyd, may his memory be for a blessing, calling out for his mother as an agent of the state. So, while our Midrash here affirms God's powerful body, at least explicitly, right, has really imagined God's body as powerful, right? We also get to see in some ways the divine body as a body in need, right? The divine body is a body that depends in some way on the strength of the martyr, right? This is part of the logic of martyrdom, how it works. God's body, as it were, gets propped up by the seven sons who affirm God's physical strength, even as their own limbs falter. So the discourse of martyrdom builds the divine body out of the remains of human sacrifice. And it demands, this is the part that I think is so crucial that we see, it demands that the human body bear the cost of fidelity to a God whose body remains absent beyond the fear of death or pain. So, while I find this midrash a powerful story and a haunting one, the way it understands and imagines God is ultimately one that leaves me cold. Again, I want to be clear, your experience may differ from mine. You may find yourself moved or affected or nourished by some of the ideas here. Okay. If so, beautiful. Okay. 
Ilan, really appreciate your comment in the chat that there's not actually, it's not only a divine absence, right? It's actually the kind of divine orchestration, right, of the death scene, which I'll just say makes it even worse for me. Okay. So um, the, the, that leads me, my own, my own, the, the way that I, I find myself ethically, spiritually, religiously troubled by this text leads me also to look at other ways that classical Jewish sources think about God. And so the next text I want to look at is a text that rests on some very different notions about the body, about power, and God's presence amidst pain. So I want to turn now to a second text, one drawn from the Babylonian Talmud, Bavli Kittin. Bavli Kittin contains the longest set of stories about the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in the entire Talmud. So this is a text that begins um, with a famous story of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa, and then goes on to tell a set of stories that are less well-known about the ruin of Jerusalem, about Jews taken captive, brutalized, and in utter distress. So I'll confess that when I, when I first started working with these texts in Bavli Kittin, I was braced for trouble, right? I was worried about what I would find. A lot of biblical narratives, from the Book of Lamentations to the writings of the prophets, tell the story of Jewish suffering in ways that I find really brutal and really difficult, especially for women's bodies. But what I found here surprised me. Unlike many other ancient Jewish narratives, Bavli Gitin spends very little time thinking about sin. There's a few exceptions here and there, but the bulk of these narrative traditions don't really center around the question of why the people suffer. Instead, the argument that I make in my book is that Bavli Gitin is primarily aiming to evoke readers' empathy and outrage against the agents of state violence, in this case, Rome. Not to blame the victims of violence and catastrophe, not even to imagine God as the righteous judge who chastises a wayward people, but to protest Roman brutality, to turn a critical eye on the violence of the conquering, and then also begin to imagine a God who empathizes with the victims of imperial aggression. So let's take a look at an example. It's the story of Tzafnat Bat Penuel. And just a reminder, friends, this is a story that involves sexual violence. Safnat Bat Penuel is the beautiful daughter of a high priest. She is seized by the Romans, assaulted by her captors, and then stripped and sold in the marketplace to an extremely ugly man. The story uses beauty here as a symbol. Right? That discourse of beauty is a way to make visceral the desecration that conquest brings. The story juxtaposes Safnat's beauty with the repulsiveness of the man who comes to buy her. 
the story sets up a stark contrast, right? Safnat is not simply lovely. She's a woman whose exquisite beauty has no equal. And her purchaser is extremely ugly, right? A man whose face is meant to mirror his depravity. Again, got some ethical problems here with that idea that beauty and ugliness, right, mirror these kind of inner qualities of soul. So the story, though, juxtaposes Safnat's beauty with the repulsiveness of the man who comes to buy her. It sets up a stark contrast, right? And the story accentuates the brutality of Tsafnat's transition from hiddenness to exposure. Destruction exposes her body to Roman violation. When her captor decides to sell her in the market, right, he covers her with seven garments, veiling her beauty from the sight of the buyer where a good rabbinic man would only get to see the beauty of a bride once he had affirmed the sanctity of their marriage, Roman captivity and enslavement allows Tzafnat to be stripped even before she is sold. The first six of the veils are taken from her, the buyer takes them off her, but Tzafnat takes the seventh in her own hands. So I read this action as a significant if subtle, shift in agency, right? It's a sign that underscores the constraint of Jewish resistance, right? We shouldn't make too much of it. But nonetheless, it uses Safnat's character to voice some possibility of dignity, even in the midst of degradation. Safnat herself strips away the final veil. She rips her garment and rolls in the dirt. She's enacting here the ritual marks of Jewish mourning and lamentation. And she does not lament for herself alone. She cries out to God, Lord of the world, even if you have no compassion on us, have you no compassion for the sanctity of your own great name? So in the midst of her degradation, Safnat laments the wound done to God's own dignity, the violence done through her to God's holy name. Now the Bavli answers through a reading of Jeremiah 6.26 that highlights God's own woundedness. The verse, the verse says, Bat Ami, Tzafnat, Bat Ami, daughter of my people, Put on sackcloth and dust, mourn and wail, for the destroyer has come upon us. Now, our text calls attention to a curious aspect of the verse, right? That last line doesn't say, upon you, right? If it said, upon you, we might think, right? We might understandably think it means the destroyer has come upon you, Safnat makes sense in light of the story. But instead, it says, upon us. Who's the us? The Bavli reads it as meaning you and me and God. God, the Bavli claims, is also at risk in the conquest. 
God is also assaulted by the predations and the desecrations of the conqueror. It's a striking and unexpected theological claim, a recognition that God's body, as it were, is also vulnerable to violence, suffering with the Jewish community in distress. The beautiful Jewish body in danger evokes and laments the war wounds God bears, the scars done to the divine. So this is a text that I think surprises on several accounts. It closes with this rare theological idea, a daring one. It imagines God as vulnerable to assault, God as wounded by Roman violence. It intertwines God's own lament with a woman's cry of pain. It also surprises because it gives a quite unexpected response to the portrayal of, woman's, of a woman's beauty. Now I want to pause here for a moment and back up, like zoom out just a little bit, to think about the way that rabbinic texts often portray beauty. Many rabbinic sources associate male beauty with spiritual virtue. Right? So a lot of the great sages in the Talmud were imagined as extraordinarily beautiful men. Women's beauty, by contrast, is uh, something of a different story. It is almost always linked with risk. Okay? So in many rabbinic stories, the sight or the sound of a beautiful woman lures men into danger. Now, we want to be careful here. Female beauty works on men without the need for female intent. Okay? So beauty isn't usually like an active evil in these sources, but it's still a powerful force, drawing the male gaze, kindling male lust, okay? endangering the marriage bonds, posing moral danger to male virtue. Right? Really appreciate the comment um, of in the chat, right? Isn't that always the way? Of course, this is not just a Jewish story, right? This is a story that we see in a lot of different cultural traditions, okay? So, so this idea of risk, right, is really tied in rabbinic sources with the idea of women's beauty. Now, for the record, I am a strong believer in the idea that every person, regardless of gender, has a responsibility to manage their own distraction and desire. Okay? Rabbinic sources, however, tend to put the burden of managing other people's reactions on the women themselves. Okay? So women, uh, rabbinic culture protects against what I call beauty risk by curbing women's visibility and mobility and voice, right? So it limits the ways that women are seen, the places that women should go, and the ways in which women should speak. The Bavli's Safnat tale begins with a phrase that activates this kind of beauty risk, right? At the very start of the narrative, the Bavli gives a symbolic etymology of Safnat's name. It links Safnat, the word, her name Safnat, with the Hebrew word Sophim, to gaze. All gazed at her beauty. Whoa, now, as somebody who's read a lot of rabbinic texts, I am seriously braced for trouble. Okay? All gazed at her beauty. 
even though the Bavli has a perfect setup here to critique Tsafnat for drawing the gaze, it takes a different path. It doesn't do it. Bavli Gitin's telling steadfastly refuses to make Tsafnat responsible for the terror that befalls her. It never says, Tsafnat, why'd you wear that dress? Why'd you wear those jeans? Why'd you take that route home? Why'd you go out alone? Instead, the Bavli turns its moral critique against the brutality of the conqueror, right? Its outrage is turned toward the rapist. Its outrage is reserved for the Roman captor, for the brutal buyer, for a world that allows a woman to be assaulted, for a world that allows her to be stripped and sold. I find that a crucial shift and a powerful call. It's a call that resonates with my own deep investment as a Jew in resisting violence and brutality, in resisting rape, in resisting enslavement and human trafficking, in resisting state violence, all the ways that our own states turn their might against black and brown bodies, all the ways they turn people into commodities, nothing more than bodies for sale. It's a story that grounds my own sense of God as fundamentally aligned, not with the aggressors, not with the powerful, the brutalizers, but with the victims of violence, with those who suffer, with those who bear the wounds. Now, it's worth noting that in the midst of her own pain, Safnat is, not surprisingly, not sure about God's empathy. Right? She cries out to God and says, if you don't care about me, about my people, God, don't you at least care about the sanctity of your own name? Right? So I just want to name the pathos there, the pain, And I also want to recognize in those words themselves a powerful theological claim, one that resonates deeply with my own sensibility, that God's name is desecrated by violence. But the conclusion of our text goes even further. It imagines God as affected by her pain, by the pain of destruction by the violence god is not distanced from that suffering distant from that suffering not removed from it but god is injured by it wounded too so our text offers i think a provocative moment of divine vulnerability a way of thinking about god as in the midst of pain and trouble a way of thinking about god as one who suffers with. This is a very different way of thinking about divine power. It's not the power to rush in, to rescue or to save, right? But a power that comes from presence. The kind of power I'm talking about here is a, is a very different thing. It's a su supple thing, a subtle one, right? It's like the touch of a hand, the offer of companionship, the power of presence. In some ways, I think 
it can't do much at all. In other ways, I think it's everything. Maybe it's the only thing. Jewish theologian Melissa Raphael has written powerfully in her book, The Female Face of God at Auschwitz. She suggests that we might find the presence of God mirrored in the smallest acts that we humans offer each other, acts of kindness and care, acts of nurture and nourishment, acts of gentleness and solidarity, even in the midst of extraordinary cruelty. And so this, this afternoon on Tisha B'Av, as we confront together the brutality, the violence, the shattering of so many and so much, I invite us each to draw deep in whatever way speaks to you, to reach toward that which sustains you, whether that's God or family, friends or teachers, loved ones, ancestors, to imagine ourselves held and cradled in that presence, to know ourselves part of that chain. And if it speaks to you too, I invite you to take up the commitments laid out so powerfully by Jewish feminist poet Adrian Rich. Rich writes, my heart is moved by all I cannot save. So much has been destroyed. I have to cast my lot with those who age after age, perversely, with no extraordinary power, reconstitute the world. Thank you. Uh, if anyone wants to ask a question, feel free to type it in the chat or to just speak up. You're also welcome to just share. So I'm very happy to respond to questions, but you're also welcome to just um, share thoughts, right? Or reactions or a, a, something that landed with you. So you don't, it's okay to not frame everything precisely as a question. If you'd just like to tell us a little more about what you're, what you're thinking. Thank you so much for the really beautiful messages and show. Great, thank you. Um, I was curious about, I mean, I think the question that you raised about beauty is very important and certainly, I think, true to a large extent that female beauty is seen as dangerous, not just in the rabbinic text, I think in the Bible, it's yes. typically dangerous as well. Yes. Um, but it is, I think, important to note that in the Bavli, if you had to pick out one hero in the Bavli, who was really the perfect person of the Bavli, I would say it's Rabbi Yeshua, actually. Mm. Rabbi Yeshua was the most beloved teacher. He's Rabbi Akiva's mm. teacher. He is both the poorest person in the world, and he's also the ugliest. Mm. I don't think that's an accident, as he said to the uh, princess, whatever, if I were even uglier, it would be better. I'd be harder. Mm. Well. So that's right. I think within the Bavli, there are voices. Um, I just had one thought about Safnat, which is something is very interesting, which is the name Safnat is the name in the Chumash given to Joseph by Paro, Safnat Paneach. Mm. And Safnat, actually, the story of Joseph 
is the one story where the man's beauty actually is seen by the woman and that she tries to get him in trouble and he actually withstands it. And it struck me that there's actually a very important message there, which is that it's a lot of the uh, taking advantage of the other happens when the other person doesn't have power. Uh, and when people are in a situation where they're beholden to the other, they're working in the house of Mrs. Potiphar is the mistress of the house. And I think a lot of times the issue of taking advantage of the other, mistreating the other, et cetera, comes when there's a uh, imbalance of power and people can be seen as, as other, as different, as lower or whatever, and often taken advantage of. And I think uh, thinking about Tishabov in a day where we have suffered and the world is suffering now, is to think a lot about how to redress that issue of balance and how to make sure everybody gets treated with the appropriate respect. So that's, I think, an interesting about Sufnat, actually. That's the yeah, one place you. you really have in Breshit where the man is attacked, and he's called which is typically a female description as well. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. You. Yeah, I think in many respects that um, uh, that my, um, I, that I, in some ways I could, I could sum up so much of my work as a both as a scholar and as a rabbi, as someone who is deeply engaged in this kind of critical study of and grappling with power and inequality. Um, that that is one of the, because of the implications that it has um, for ethical violation and for harm, um, that's, you're naming something that's at the heart of, um, yeah, just, it matters to me very, very deeply. Um, I, um, I also really um, uh, appreciate the comments about beauty. Um, it's an interesting, there's one of the things I love about a lot of discourse in the Bavli is that there's a, one of the things that I'm very interested in is what I often identify as a kind of self-critical note within the Bavli where the Bavli will sometimes um, turn sort of like puncture rabbinic investment in its, um, in some of these customary hierarchies and show that in fact these sort of customary notions of the valence of beauty and ugliness, right, actually deserve to be turned on their head, flipped on their head. The same thing happens with a lot of disability discourse in the, um, in the, in the Bavli especially, but in rabbinic storytelling where we see um, sometimes the rabbis really critiquing um, uh, some of those cultural instincts or impulses. I want to just lift up a, a, a question that emerged in the, um, in the chat. Um, uh, Shea French asks, what do we do with a part where ableism is used to denigrate Caesar's gods? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I just find that so um, difficult. Um, and I think partly my strategy is to say, I want to call our critical attention to it. I want us to look at it, to name it, to see it for what it is, and to say nope to it, right? I just want to hold out the power, right? The ethical power of the loving no, right? Which says that aspect, um, I'll turn back to Rich, right? Adrienne Rich has this beautiful moment where she talks about the importance of, um, of that loyalty to a tradition also can mean looking very deeply at a tradition and recognizing which parts of that tradition 
which strands might be frayed and in need of repair, right? And which are luminous and powerful and able to, to hold us for the future. So this for me, that, that moment, Psalm 115, right, is a text that I turn to as a way of saying, I kind of turn to it as a testimony, a sort of witness almost of the power, the corrosive power of ableism in the world. But I don't hold that particular discourse, right? Those particular lines don't resonate for me as, um, right? I want, I teach that text in order to say, let's do differently, right? Let's, um, let's mend that moment, which seems to me to be a frayed place, a place actually that has cut hard against a lot of us. Susanna Heschel. Yeah, hi, thank you so much. It's just, it's just wonderful. Uh, the text that you brought, uh, very strong, very powerful, and I'm so grateful for the way you read them with us. Thank you. Um, I, I'm struck first by when, when you speak about God's suffering with us, uh, how much that is Hasidic tradition and Kabbalistic tradition and, uh, you know, with the rabbinic idea of Tzorach Gavoha, that actually what you're pointing to is telling us that is, in fact, rabbinic theology. And the other notions we have, those are the, the those are misunderstandings, uh, let's say, or I would say. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Um, I'm just curious about one thing in the passage in Gittin, which is, I know, as you mentioned, part of a larger mm -hmm. section about destruction of the temple. Is it possible to think about that in uh, perhaps metaphorical terms uh, as also a metaphor of Judaism responding to Christianity, uh, that the, you know, the, the temple in, New, in Christian ideas, New Testament ideas, uh, is, plays a central role. The destruction of the temple is the destruction of Christ or the death of Christ. That is, that Judaism sees itself as the beautiful woman who is, uh, who is raped by Christianity, who is having a bit of trouble hearing you the connection is is um is going so i'm going to respond to just what you've um what i've heard from you um so far thank you for the powerful comments um i do think so i actually think that um uh, both, right, elu elu, both these and those are part of rabbinic theology. It's actually just really important to me to emphasize this idea um, that rabbinic theology, Jewish theology, is not all one thing. Um, and that posture is so important to me because it has allowed me, that multivocality has actually allowed me the space to say, mm, there's actually room for a lot of different ways for, right, God's too big for any of us, right? For any of our theologies to like wrap, wrap around and pin down. Um, so I'm kind of invested in that. But as I've made very clear today, I certainly have um, theologies that I like and theologies that I, um, I'm not into. So um, I'm, I'm very much with you there. And I think that um, 
Uh, symbolically, one of the things that's really interesting to me about these texts in Gitin is that the, um, the many of the texts about Jewish beauty being despoiled by Rome are, I think, also grappling with the, um, the temple's loss, the idea of what it means to lose one's holy place um, and holy space. Um, so many of the metaphors uh, relate the beautiful female body in some ways to the interiority of the temple, right? Suggesting that sense um, that there's a kind of desecration of both, um, desecration of the sanctuary and a desecration of the body, right? Um, really moved here also by a comment that's happening in the chat. So uh, Che Ran Freeze, thank you very much for also bringing back uh, Panina Weinberg's comment earlier about the question of a mother's breast and God's name. Um, uh, this is of, of course so present in the, um, the, um, the Lamentations Rabbah story, which uses um, the, which, which, which gives us the, the, um, the physical form of the female body as a source of nurture and 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 um, nourishment, right? The act of nursing here is a way of drawing strength and comfort, right? Mother, child. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, Panina, your comment earlier in the chat was to ask whether this might be a kind of allusion to the idea of Shekhinah, um, the divine feminine presence. Um, so, I mean, I'll give two answers, one with my historian's hat on, which is to say, I don't think that the, um, I, I don't think it's that likely that rabbinic midrash and Lamentations Rabbah is thinking in quite as fleshy and feminine embodied a way about Shekhinah, that it would use the symbol of the breast evocatively, right? That's, that's my historian's answer, right? With my historian's hat on, right? But my, as a reader, Right? Um, as a reader invested in these texts and thinking also that these, understanding these texts to also speak beyond their particular historical moment, right? I absolutely hear in that text a kind of evocation of, an invitation to think about divine feminine presence which I mentioned also, I mean, that's for me, when I think about what, where I find, right, the presence of, right, what I lean into is the presence of God in that story. It's not the um, puppet master, right, behind the scenes, orchestrating the whole execution scene. And it's that moment, that very maternal moment between mother and child. Julia? Yes. It's Devara. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much. Um, I, I wanted to get back to the Gitin text for a second and, and actually uh, ask you something that, that relates to the comment you made just before this one about um, the, the, the temple. Um, the, the text is choosing to etymologize Safnat as Shakhold Sofin Biafia, everybody looks mm -hmm. at her. But of course, Safnat also, and probably more likely, uh, has within it the word Safun, something that's yeah. in fact hidden. Hidden, hidden yeah. And, and together with that, which is the daughter of Pniel, right, which means to see the face of God, the hidden face, God, yeah. right? Um, and uh, her father is the Kohen Gadol, Shishimesh Lifnaevelifnim, right, who, who once a year gets to go inside the sacred precincts of the temple to encounter God face to face, the God who is usually hidden. So it, it feels to me that this text is playing 
with what it means to hide someone, to gaze at someone, to properly and improperly uh, be able to gaze at someone else. And that, in fact, really sort of conflates uh, Safna with, with God, as God, yeah. as God says at the end, this mm. is my story as well as your story. Mm. We are both people who are hidden and who are either appropriately or inappropriately seen, depending on the situation, depending on the context. So I, I wonder if you, if you thought uh, at all about that and um, you know, how sort of the gaze the, the permitted and appropriate and relational gaze as opposed to the violative and, yeah. and inappropriate gaze might, might yeah. play into the story. And That's really beautiful. Thank you for, thank you for, I mean, you've, you've just laid it out so beautifully, right? So um, I'll say yes to that. Um, this is a kind of um, moment where the rabbis have, have opted not for a strict etymology, right? But for an etymology that allows them to do something they want to do exegetically. So the um, the um, I think that that choice alerts us in part to the fact that they're interested in this question of the problem of the gaze, um, and particularly the fact that Safnat as a as a priestly daughter would also likely have been subject to particular right. She of all daughters should have been kept from the gaze of. Um, those men out on the street, right? So I think that we're seeing here also a juxtaposition between the kind of intimacy of the sanctioned priestly gaze, which is again, a sort of sense of God looking at God, look at God looking back, right? That, that moment, which is meant here, I think to be um, intimate, maybe even tender, right? Um, and the abject brutality of what happens in the Roman market. That juxtaposition is also partly why I say this text is a text that, is a, that aims to stir us as readers, right? It wants to work on us as readers, right? To help us see state violence to see brutality, to say no to it, right? To not take the path of saying, oh, it's tough, not what did you do wrong, right? But instead to say, to not try and justify that violation, but to say, that's wrong. That shift, I think, orients the text and orients drives a lot of at least what I see as the kind of poetics of um, the the broader Gitin Sugya, especially the second half of the Sugya, um, which is full of these stories of violation um, that express tremendous, profound empathy with the violated. Natalie. Hi, um, I have what may be just a real bummery and literal question, but um, in this whole experience, we're thinking of Israel as the raped bride of God. And I wonder what is the, what actually happens to women who are raped with their husbands returning to them in this period or in this understanding. Yeah. Uh, what kind of reunion are we looking at? Yeah, so um, there are... Um, uh, so for, for 
so I know very little about what we can, you know, I know I have very little to offer in terms of the actual material uh, circumstances of embodied historical women from this period. We can talk a little bit about that later on, right? But I just, I don't have, I don't have access and I don't think we collectively have a lot of access to, um, uh, sources that would help us understand that. So our primary source for thinking about is what do rabbinic texts say? Um, the hardest situation is for would be for a woman uh, like Tzafnat, so for a person who is from a priestly lineage, so a woman who is married to a, um, a priest, where um, this, where an experience of, um, of rape would likely disqualify her um, uh, from marriage. In other situations, though, um, many rabbinic sources imagine um, basically also um, legally, halachically, empathize with the, um, the position of the violated woman, right, and work to reunite the, um, the parties, right. So um, I think it's also worth noting that um, our texts do not just think about this in terms of women's violation. So our texts are also um, grappling with the, the, the fact and the reality that male bodies, right, the bodies of all genders, right, but especially they're thinking here in pretty binary terms, male and female bodies are subject to Roman violence and to sexual assault. And so I actually think that that's their recognition of, of Jewish men as also vulnerable to the conqueror is part of what helps the sources here activate a really profound sense of empathy, right? Um, in ways that they don't always muster when, the, um, when they're just thinking about, when they're just thinking in terms of, of there's something here about the colonial aggression, right? About the the conquest of Rome that makes it, that helps the rabbis themselves, it seems to me, get clearer. This is all conjecture on my part, right? But I'm trying to think about what is it that makes, right, the beauty discourse, for example, go in a really different way. Um, and I think that's in part because there is a recognition here of the fact that um, there, there are all, right, all their bodies are on the line. Right. Um, if not in material terms, then in, in a kind of psychic way, right? Because of course, these texts are, are written later, right? Um, not in Israel-Palestine anymore, but in Babylonia, right? So it's all very complicated in terms of what's actually happen happening with physical human bodies, right? But there's a way, I think, in which that, that sense of the Roman war machine as having done something to the bodies of right, the people that activates this sense of rabbinic, deep rabbinic empathy um, in ways that, again, I just, I, I find very important and a really powerful reminder, I guess I would say a reminder for all of us to think about what are the ways that we can, when, that we can activate that sense of empathy for other bodies that are suffering rather than trying to 
create a discourse whereby those bodies in some way become responsible for what has befallen them. We have any uh, last thoughts or questions? Thank you so much, all of you, for really um, for really moving thoughts and questions shared in the chat, shared in conversation. Um, it is uh, an extraordinary pleasure for me to have the chance to be in conversation with all of you about these texts. Thank you for everything, for all the heart, right, that you bring to these questions. May we go forth um, today with that uh, in whatever way speaks to you, but I hope, I wish for us that sensitivity to that awareness of that empathy for right, our own bodies, the bodies of all of us in this world um, in need of comfort, care, companionship, presence. Kimi Hibetsan, may it be so. Thank you. All right, thank you so much. Thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, have an easy, meaningful rest of the day. Um, yeah, thank you again, Dr. Belzer, for this really, really amazing session. <laughs>